Today's scripture is from Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. This is the word of God. Amen. We're beginning our study, though, in the letter or letter to Colossians, and it's, there's a booklet that's been, uh, I think it's 50-some-odd pages that was created and put together uh, to guide you through this study for the next 16 weeks, and so we want you to take one. Uh, hopefully there's still some. We'll have more if not. Uh, read it as an individual. Uh, use it for your study, uh, and also use it to prepare for Sunday. If you're a, a parent uh, with, with children... Uh, we have put uh, some resources in here to help you honestly prepare for Sunday morning. I'm committed to taking my kids through this, or at least using it as a guide, so that they understand, because we like kids to be in the service, you know, as young as possible, but then they understand what's happening and, and what's expected, and they're kind of prepared for Sunday. In the back, there's uh, three different appendixes that are based off our core values as a church, gospel truth. Uh, you'll see the Colossians basically is about Jesus in a very overt way. And so uh, the gospel truth section is 40-some-odd simple questions about theology or what the Bible has to say about Jesus. It might be good for you to learn and to share with your kids. Uh, the second is uh, gospel community, our second core value, and that appendix breaks down what it will be like to kind of have a, a weekly, once-a-week uh, Sabbath with your family, what that would look like, which is kind of an organized, I guess, worship time, and we have feasting and, and prayer and just kind of laughter and it's, uh, some suggestions in there. And the last one is really for all of us, not just your children. It's called Gospel Living based on our final core value. And it basically gives you seven different ways to start living missionally a little more um, intentionally, like uh, seven prayers for non-believers. Um, you want to pray for people to know Christ, uh, that you might know um, nearby in your context, your jobs, your neighborhoods. Uh, six introductions to neighbors or new people. Very simple, just like, why don't you meet six people over the next six weeks? Like, walk next door and say, hi, I'm your neighbor. We've lived each other, next to each other for 12 years, and I would like to know your name now. Um, the uh, inviting people over to your home for dinner, uh, invitations to gospel community gatherings, which could be church, could be a road group, could be lots of things. Um, three places or people to serve, two people to have gospel conversations with, and one to teach to do the same, all those things. So really just suggestions to help you go, what does it mean to live a Christian life? Well, why don't you start walking down this path and see how it works out for you. So that's what it is there for. Today um, is an introductory kind of to the whole study, and so sometimes introduction sermons can be a little academic, but that's because uh, we go verse by verse through Bible books, books of the Bible, and so we believe that you need to understand the context of what's going on and how the, how the letter or the book came about and who wrote it and all those things. So we're going to go through two whole verses today. Um, and the first is going to teach us who wrote it and kind of why he wrote it. Secondly is uh, who he wrote it to, who are these people that are receiving it. And then the third thing really is uh, why should we care at all about a 2,000-year-old letter. So well, we'll hopefully hit that. So we're going to start with, uh, from, from the get-go, verse 1, that just says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So the beginning of these letters are, are formally like introductions, uh, like dear whoever and from all in the beginning. So we see that this letter <clears throat> was written um, around 30 years, just so you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, and it was written by a guy named Paul. So who's Paul? Well, before Paul, as you may be familiar with, was the missionary, church planter, uh, New Testament writer, uh, and Christian martyr beheaded in Rome. Uh, he was Saul, which was really, Saul and Paul are the same guy. He had both names all the time. He just went by one or the other. Uh, and Saul, at that time, was a very devout Jewish Pharisee. Uh, super, hyper, fundamental, Bible-thumping, religious guy. Okay? Now, uh, he was born to a dad who was a Pharisee. And all that to say that your family has an effect on who you are. You bring pieces and you, it shapes who you are and, and the context you grow in is going to have some level of influence. So his dad was a Pharisee. 
Um, and he was from a family that was Jewish, obviously, and they're from the tribe of Benjamin. And baby Saul was circumcised the eighth day, and that was because the law said on the eighth day, that's when you're supposed to do it. And so they were taken to the priest. He was circumcised, which launched him on his path of becoming a law-loving, Moses-worshipping, self-righteous jerk is pretty much what he became. So Saul was uh, educated incredibly well. Uh, he was educated at uh, or by the strictest manner of the Jews, uh, memorized lots of verses. He would have been a, a Jewish Awana stud, um, and he was taught by the famous and well-respected rabbi named uh, Gamaliel. And you see him in the book of Acts um, making judgments in a, in a place of posi- or position of authority. Now Saul uh, self-described him, uh, he described himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, if you want a Jewish guy, this is him. He's the ideal Jewish guy. Um, he was, uh, because of his piety... His adherence, Saul, by his own account, viewed himself as blameless, like perfect, pure. Um, He probably felt or did feel that it was due to his fanatical devotion to keeping of the over 600 laws of the Mosaic law. I mean, he was a law-abiding guy and probably a few he made up as well. So his... His Jewish identity, just his, his family to begin with, and then his, his religion and the Mosaic Law and all the feasts and all the festivals and all the Old Testament narratives and all the laws and all the commentary on those laws by the rabbis served as this governing supreme power in his life that impacted his decisions, how he understood circumstances, and permeated every detail of his life from how he talked from what he felt uh, to how he related to people, it was the dictating, governing power. And when he was probably close to 30 years old, uh, the prime of his life, this blind devotion, and it was blind because we find out very quickly, though he is um, proposing to, to support God, he's actually fighting against him in many ways. This blind devotion, this misguided worship of religion, That's what he worshipped. Religion was his worship. Inspired this unquenchable zeal in him that led to him becoming one of the most feared persecutors of the early Christian church that we see in Acts chapter 2 being born. And he viewed the church at that time as a group of fools, but even more so a group of threatening fools, who were following a criminal named Jesus. He was a criminal not just because he died a criminal's death on the cross, but because he, from his perspective, and many of the Jews of the time, threatened to destroy everything Judaism stood for. We know that's not true, but that was Paul's perspective. And Paul himself later gets accused of the same things, of wanting to destroy the Mosaic Law, wanting to deny all things Jewish. And, and so he was, in many ways, the, one of the first terrorists that, that filled the Christian church with fear all throughout Judea. And they were so fearful because he had authority to arrest and throw people in prison, and he had the confidence or um, ambition to kill those who were, quote, of the way. They weren't called Christians back then. They were called people of the way, men, women, and children. And we see him, even in Acts chapter 7, standing and killing one of the uh, first Christian leaders named Stephen and participating in his stoning. So Saul began to terrorize the church as soon as it was launched or began in in the early days of what we read in Acts chapter 1 through about 7. And in Acts chapter 8, right after the stoning of Stephen, we see that his efforts caused many people to flee from the city. Everyone wanted out of Jerusalem. Ironically, that forced the gospel to go out of Jerusalem into all of Judea, which Jesus had told his disciples to do, but I guess they needed a little bit of help. And so Saul was the tool to do that. And 
as they fled, Saul followed them. He got letters of authority from the synagogues because people were very connected with the synagogues. So they would go into the synagogues of cities and he would say, tell me who all the people of the way are and where the leaders are. And he would arrest them or kill them. So he followed them to a city called Damascus, as I talked about last week. And on the way to this city, Jesus shows up, meets Saul face to face, talks to him face to face, and everything changed for him and for the rest of us. And that zeal and that passion and that really violent devotion to the idol of religion, really to himself in many ways, was overwhelmed by the power of the gospel of grace. So much though, as my favorite verse, 1 Timothy 1.15, he could say, I'm the greatest and chief of all sinners because of the grace he felt that he was shown by Christ. So, Jesus in that moment transformed him. And because he met him face to face and he was there, Jesus commissioned him personally, sent him personally, and that's why Paul can say, I'm an apostle, messenger of Christ. Those are the requirements of being an apostle. And he was so to the non-Jewish world. Jesus told Ananias, the guy that was in the city that would go meet with Paul and pray with him, that Paul was going to be this. This is what Paul is going to happen to this once murderer of Christians. He's going to be a chosen instrument of mine, he said, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So the book of Acts, in case you didn't know, is the record of that shift in allegiance of Paul for the next 20 years. And all the letters and things that Paul writes can be kind of put over the top of the book of Acts, and you can see how they all fit in the churches that he plants and where he's going. And so, real quick summary to show where Colossians fits in there. If you put the first map up, Paul... Uh, began his ministry with a guy named Barnabas. No one believed that Paul was who he said he was, that he'd been changed, which you got a reputation for killing Christians, kind of understandable. But Barnabas, the encourager, the one guy that came beside him and said, nope, I'm going to seek him out, I'm going to believe, and I'm even going to support and be a cheerleader for him. He comes along, Paul, and together, beginning in Acts 13, they go out on what is called the first missionary journey. What a missionary journey is, is Paul would go out, preach the gospel, people would come to believe, he would gather them into a a church, install leaders, and then move on. He would teach them and train them and and, and revisit them and eventually write letters to them. The first one was a year-long trip, and in that time he saw many come to, to know Jesus You saw um, new churches being planted, new leaders being raised up, and Paul himself being pounded on. He got stoned one time in the city of Lystra, while a young Timothy, a guy with a Jewish mom and a Greek father, watched and went, hmm. They took Paul out of the city after he preached Jesus. They stoned him, and then they thought he was dead, as his disciples thought as well. When they all left, Paul gets up dusts himself off, and goes back in the city and preaches. Wow, that's a change. Comes back to Antioch, spends some time in Jerusalem, and then about Acts 15, he begins a second missionary journey. It's going to last about four-ish years. I say four-ish because there's disagreement exactly how long things were, and there's no dates given in the book of Acts. Paul basically said, I want to go revisit all the cities we did the first time, Barney. And Barney says, let's take this other guy. And Paul's like, I don't want to take that guy. His name's Mark. And so Paul and Barnabas disagreed and went their separate ways. And Paul took a guy named Silas with him this time. And from Jerusalem, they left with Silas. And he went and visited all the cities and some that he hadn't visited. And on the way, they went through Lystra. And they picked up a young guy named Timothy who had seen Paul get stoned and thought, you know what, that looks like a fun job. You know, I think I'll go with them. 
So he comes with him, and we, we learn that Timothy becomes a great pastor and, and leader, one of his kind of lieutenants, if you will. The mission, again, lasted over about uh, four-ish years. He wrote the letters during that time of Galatians. It was probably his first letter. First and second Thessalonians as well. And you'll see in these letters that Paul just like laying out the gospel, the truth of the gospel, being clear about what he's, what he's teaching. In addition, he defends himself a little bit. Because people are still like, who are you? You're not one of the super apostles like Peter and John. He even uses that term. Eventually comes back to Antioch again. Always going out of Antioch. You go to the second map. That was the second. That's the first, right? You go to the second missionary journey. You can see his travels. You can see Ephesus on the corner up there. This is the, the Mediterranean. So Jerusalem, Israel is all on this side down here. Um, he goes out of Antioch uh, right at north. Uh, will be northern Israel. And you see Tarsus is where he was born and raised. And he goes around and he kind of loops back. Different things happen during those times. Acts 18 records the third and really final-ish missionary journey. He goes from Antioch, if you show the third map. And it lasted about four-ish years as well. So you have about 15 to 20 years of time represented in here. He stopped at Ephesus. He stayed there for two years. And in that time, he taught and taught and taught. In fact, in the Bible, it talks about him hanging out in a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, which just sounds cool, right? And he stayed and he lectured. He taught the gospel and taught people for two years. And in that time, in his time in Ephesus, a lot of people came to believe. And one guy named Epaphras. And another guy named Philemon or Philemon, came to believe. Both of them were Colossians from the city of Colossae. Epaphras wanted to take what he had learned in the gospel. He wanted to go back to his hometown. So he did. And he planted a church there. Church of Colossae. Philemon supposedly came with him because if you read the beginning of that letter, the same name, we see that in the first couple of verses, there was a church in his house. So most likely that church began as a house church in that house of these two guys partnering to do this. Epaphras would later go and plant two other churches. We don't exactly know when, but this is somewhat assumed by the biblical record at Laodicea and Heropolis, which are neighboring cities. Laodicea, you laid it here because there's a letter written to them in the book of Revelation. It's amazing how things all connected. Okay? So, during this time, he wrote 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He also wrote the book of Romans during that journey. So, for many years, Paul went, you know, night and day, oil and water, totally different paths. One path devoted, raised, his whole family raised him to be this certain way turns the other direction and dedicates this huge chunk of his life and he is used, as Jesus said he would be, as an instrument to take the gospel to the Gentile world and to the Jewish world and he would stand before kings and he would stand before governors and preach. And just as Jesus said, Paul suffered greatly for it. More so than many of us will ever suffer for our faith. To the point where under the Emperor Nero, he was most likely beheaded. Well, he was beheaded, but was Nero not as disputed. Here is his own record in 2 Corinthians of the things he's experienced as an apostle of this new way of life. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, Here's his record of pain. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Most likely that was with a cat of nine tails with small chunks of rock and stuff that they would rip the flesh. He says forty lashes minus one because it was assumed at forty lashes that you were dead. They would kill you. So thirty-nine lashes he got three times, or five times, sorry. 
Three times is a little bit easier. He was just beaten with rods. Once he was stoned, we read about that at Lystra, to the point where they thought he was dead. You can imagine how messy that was, but no, he got up. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety and stress for all the churches. Makes your life seem a heck of a lot better, doesn't it? Or not so bad. Guy suffered and kept going and suffered and kept going and suffered. He's like, I'm doing God's work. Why am I suffering? Oh, wait. Maybe those go together. And despite the cost of his apostleship, all of the damage to his reputation, most likely the rejection by his own family, certainly the rejection by his Jewish brothers and friends, telling him, you traitor, you were raised this way. How could You're an idiot. His reputation destroyed. Suspicion from Christian brothers who were like, yeah, right. Murderer Paul, mm-hmm. preacher Paul, whatever. His emotional sanity... His physical health, not only being beaten, but he had a thorn in his flesh. No one knows exactly what that was. Could have been his eyes. His material wealth, most likely as a Pharisee, he had had substantial means. He was doing well, gone, to the point where he's making tents in order to make a living at times. Despite all of those things, he describes himself as one chosen by the will of God. For me, that's like, it dumbfounds me. He believed that God had placed him in every moment, in every circumstance, leading up to the, even the steps he had been taking in writing this letter. God had always had him exactly where he was supposed to be. And he begins many of his letters in the same way, and I remember studying this when I was really torn about whether I was supposed to be a pastor or not. This isn't like five years ago. It's like, you know, two weeks ago type of mentality, right? It's not like that ever goes away. But in others' letters, he says, I was called by God's will. I was set apart for the gospel. I was made a servant of Christ. I'm an apostle by the command of God. By the command of God. To believe that God has commanded you to do something. So it goes without saying that Paul had been a transformed man and that he viewed his life and world entirely differently than he once had. So much so that he was willing to lose everything, even his very life, that it was meaningless. Everything he had, he said, was garbage compared to what he had. He had nothing by the worldly, fleshly measurement. And yet it's a way, I honestly think, that is entirely foreign to us, to most of us, thinking that way. And at the time Paul actually wrote this letter, he's experiencing his first of a couple imprisonments in Rome. Now how he got there begins in Acts 21. You can read it if you like. There's 28 chapters in Acts. So his missionary journeys kind of end there. He says, I feel like I'm going to go to Rome. And everybody's like, don't go because you're probably going to die. He's like, yeah, I think I know that. In Acts 21, he gets unfairly and unjustly arrested by the Jews. And the rest of the chapters up through 28 really is his journey, which includes a shipwreck and some other things, as he's traveling to Rome where he will eventually die. But right now he's in prison in Rome. And throughout the duration of his ministry... Paul spent about five, a little more than five years in prison or as a prisoner. And yet, despite being crushed, 
persecuted, and imprisoned, Paul never stops from his gospel work wherever he is. And he never stops believing that God is in control no matter how cruddy or crappy it gets. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, which in this prison he wrote four letters. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. Philemon. And in Philippians chapter 1, here's what he says about this prison he's in. His time there. Tell me if it sounds like he's complaining. Verse 12 of chapter 1 in Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that being Rome, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's, that's just crazy. I mean, anyone would look at it. Man, guys, guess what happened when I got thrown in prison? Isn't it fantastic? And it gets to the point that this guy views his life through a lens that is so different than mine. He writes with such belief in the fact that he is so content. Philippians 4, later in the same book, he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which is a verse that's totally abused and taken out of context. And it's the idea of he is so he is content, writing from prison with nothing. I'm so content. He had learned some secret, some mystery to the extent where he was willing, joyful, to lose everything, even his very life. So what was the secret? Because I, we, I, we really want to be content. That is the ultimate goal for all of us. The world and many people pursue it in different ways, but that's really what they're searching for. Even the guys that broke into this place and stole some amps and a guitar and even a bag of candy, which is kind of weird, but, you know, shows you how old they were. Maybe someday they'll come back here and confess and they'll say, I got met Jesus, and that'd be awesome. But ultimately, they're believing that they can get this and maybe that will make them content or this will give them something to make them content. That's what everyone's searching for. But Paul here learns the secret of contentment where he appears unfazed, even appreciative of unjust, unfair, uncomfortable circumstances. He hasn't done anything wrong. He stands before governors all the time. He's like, well, I didn't really do anything wrong, but let me tell you about Jesus. And every time they're like, yeah, you didn't really do anything wrong, but I'm going to put you in prison for a while because it might help me. And they use him. He's like, all right. I'll just write some letters to churches. But he, he viewed even the smallest irritations, but even the greatest suffering as actually a part of God's desired plan. And as he writes this letter, I mean, you have to, we have to ask the question because it's easy to kind of go, oh yeah, you know, that's so spiritual and I believe that. But this guy believes that prison is exactly where God wants him to be. So let me ask you, because it's unlikely that many of us are going to be in prison for our faith, though the day certainly could come. Let's talk about just that idea of imprisonment for a second, because many of us, although we may not actually be in a prison, we feel imprisoned by many things in our lives, whether it's our jobs or a particular relationship or our finances or even our physical bodies. It's those areas of life where you feel Things are not as they should, could, or ought to be. Those places where you feel unfairly treated, or you feel lost or powerless. Because it's in prison situations like this where you begin to question, we begin to question whether we're actually 
following God's will or God has us where we're at and we begin to search for something to blame and we look for a way out or we go, hmm, I sense a new call to get us out of this situation that we hate. Or worse, we find a new God with new promises that make us feel better. But how... If you're a believer in Christ, if you have trusted Christ for your salvation, I wonder how your life and my life would change if we could actually believe like Paul that God had placed us in every moment, in every circumstance up to this very moment where we could actually believe that I was blank by the will of God. Fill it in. I'm a man by the will of God, a woman by the will of God, a husband by the will of God, a wife by the will of God, a mom, a dad. I'm in this job by the will of God. I'm experiencing this health thing by the will of God. I'm exactly where I am by the will of God. I mean, how would that change? I remember reading that and going, oh, my gosh, what if I just, for me, it was like a pastor by the will of God. Oh. That means that these things that I don't like are actually for my good, and I don't really want to believe that. But I get to a place where I do believe that. you got to go, what changed in Paul to get him to that place? And what changed was he put his faith in Jesus Christ. And it's more than just an assent to facts It's where Paul had once held religion as key to his identity. Where he had once held this thing as supreme to govern everything. He now had Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus as Lord and Savior as supreme. More than words. More than some idea. More than just a good life. More than just a humble, great example. Jesus was the greatest of all things. Viewing Jesus this way means that He becomes the center of all life. He becomes more precious than anything, more desirable than anyone, worthy of giving the smallest and the biggest things in our life to worship Him. Everything becomes secondary. Everything becomes meaningless in light of Him. When I trust that Jesus is truly superior in every way, superior to me, superior to what my plans might be, we begin to humble ourselves and He becomes the governing power in my life, governing everything. Jesus becomes supreme in how I speak, supreme in how I understand, supreme in my marriage, supreme in my job and how I work, everything. Jesus becomes the guide and the power for all of it. His death becomes the supreme motivation because you're free. His resurrection becomes a supreme hope that this is not all there is. And His life becomes not only the supreme example of how to live all these ways, but the power, the supreme power, the only power to actually live in love to the glory of God. He becomes truly supreme. And if He's not only the greatest of all things, but as you put him as the greatest of all things, he becomes the only thing that you actually need. He becomes so incredibly sufficient, more than any power or wealth or relationships or health or fame, whatever else you might think is going to provide you whatever it is you think is going to make you content. Jesus becomes enough. Sit on that for a second because I know it can sound so like Christianese. Yeah, Jesus is enough. Rah, rah. But look at Paul. Jesus becomes and became for him so deeply satisfying, more than anything he might want or need, to the extent that he had such a deep belief in the gospel that the best the world had to offer didn't allure him. He had such a deep conviction in the gospel that the worst the world had to offer 
abuse, death didn't scare him. Christ's sufficiency means this. That if you get Jesus, if you have Jesus, if Jesus has you, I can lose everything else or not get anything else and still be more than okay. Not just, I could be alright. No, no, no. You can be genuinely, fully, joyful, content, and satisfied if you get nothing else. I used to play that game with myself, with my, my wife. Like, well, if we lose the house, I still have you. If we lose this, we still have each other. If we, I still have the, you know. But let's just talk about losing all of that. Let's talk about losing your wife, losing your kids, losing your job. Is Jesus truly enough? Do you really believe Jesus has you? That's where Jesus is truly supreme. That's where he's truly sufficient. That's where Paul's at. In other words, the gospel is supposed to do more than just remind us and proclaim to us and and show us that a relationship with God is completely restored forever. It is to renew us in every aspect of our life over and over and over again. It's supposed to transform us to the point where, whether it be prosperity or poverty, health or suffering, injustice or favor, sorrow or joy, Jesus is supreme and Jesus is sufficient. And this is why he writes to Colossae, people that he has never, ever met, just like us. I don't know how many of you have met the Apostle Paul. Haven't. Neither of these guys. He writes to the saints and faithful brethren, faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He might as well say to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Damascus Road Church. And quite frankly, if the ancient city of Colossae existed today, it could have been called Marysville. Seriously. If you study what the city was like, um, it was... Located next to water on the southern bank of this river called Lycus in what is modern-day Turkey today. And it's many miles um, from a, a thriving city of Ephesus, Seattle, and resting in a fertile valley where they were known for growing uh, figs and I think some other fruits or strawberries. And, right? And prior to this time where Paul writes, they were a thriving city. It was... It was prominent, but now it's declined in Roman times in both its commercial and and social importance. And quite frankly, at the time Paul writes, Colossae is pretty much an unimportant little city. It's kind of pinched between other cities that might be more so important. And because of the incredible expansion of the Roman Empire, and its culture, the world has been exposed to a diverse number of colorful ways of thinking and acting and believing and and living. And the noise of this global culture is just overwhelming. It's, It's everywhere. And that culture is now beginning to bleed into and threaten the faith of this young church that's probably under five years old. Huh. How interesting, considering our five year anniversary is in two months. And Epaphras, the guy, the Colossian who planted the church, has now come back, found Paul in Rome, and told him some disturbing news about teachers who have come in are now starting to challenge the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And no one's exactly sure, I say no one, I mean scholars, on what exactly the heresy was that was being taught or who was specifically teaching it, but if you, the letter reveals it to be kind of this spiritual smorgasbord buffet kind of thing. It takes a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Jewish legalism, a little bit of secret handshakes, a little bit of angel worship, and just kind of like, yeah, this is what you need because you can have Jesus, but you also need this. You can have Jesus, but you also need this emotional experience. You can have Jesus, but you also need this very specific theology. Start adding all these things, and these people are starting to feel threatened, and they are. And so you have a prisoner, Paul, who has less than nothing in the eyes of many, who has been beaten, broken, 
thrown out, rejected, abused. They've never met him, heard about him. And he writes, ironically, a definitive, authoritative response to anyone who might say life in Christ is somehow incomplete or less. From prison, with scars, and nothing else. Oh, let me tell you about life in Christ. True contentment. And because the culture, honestly, of Colossae is not much different than our own, its letter is very much for us. Because today's global world, where we are just inundated with noise from the internet, from TV and our phones, like all the time, sermons, sermons being preached to us, false gods being presented to us. And at this point, the one unique characteristic about our culture is that you can go out, pick your God, and like a Build-A-Bear, do a Build-A-Kingdom for yourself, and take little pieces that you want to make it suit whatever it is you feel or think or want. And you can create something, even put a label of Christianity on it. And the one thing that all these things have in common is the rejection of Christ as supreme. We have these new smorgasbord buffet belief systems with their own value systems, their own definitions of love, their own views of authority, their own understandings of family, their own perspectives on suffering, their own answers for how to have prosperity, their own you know, declarations of what are the God-given rights that we have, their own sources of hope, and their own sets of guidelines to govern your decisions and to interpret your circumstances. And there are many different kingdoms with many different idols all at their core vying for supremacy. There's material ones, there's social ones, there's relational ones, there's religious ones, there's material ones. At the core of all of those, as I said, even some that are so-called Christian ones, is a denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a rejection of our Creator, Jesus, as supreme and sufficient for all that we do, say, or think. That's the core of all of them. And instead of Christ, what's happened is that people, and I say people as in us, because some of us, maybe all of us at some time in our life have made this a reality, we make something other than Christ supreme. Some other false God, some other functional Savior that we actually believe is going to bring us peace and true contentment. And our devotion to that God, our worship to that God, our sacrifice for that God, Our risks for that God permeate every aspect of our life. It's the kind of perverted devotion that, quite frankly, destroys lives. And it is the kind of devotion that shapes an individual's worldview so powerfully that it would lead someone to fly airplanes into a building to the honor of their God. And I know it might disgust us to make what seems like kind of a ridiculous comparison, but just for a second, know that motivated by false gods, some material, some social, some relational, some religious, people have pursued with equally great zeal, equally horrific things in the eyes of the Lord. And there are more people then we can count who have sacrificed and ruined and destroyed their own lives and the lives of others in pursuit of what they believe is going to bring them success, contentment, happiness, joy, apart from the one true God and His Word. People have given their lives in the worship of themselves. They've given their lives and destroyed their families in the worship of substances. Given their lives and destroyed their families in the worship of sex. Given their lives and destroyed their families in the worship of finances and money. Call it whatever you want. There's no difference between many of these gods. The one thing they share is the rejecting Christ as supreme. Christ as the governor of all things. 
And ironically, it's really not very ironic, Paul ends his greeting here with an offering of grace and peace, the very thing that's at the core of this supremacy problem. The grace of God is about God's work, His unconditional, undeserved love toward men through the cross. And the peace that he talks about speaks to that new relationship that comes as a result of that grace. A relationship that is truly shalom, that Hebrew word. True contentment, true peace, a state of being regardless of circumstance where he knew no he has you. The problem is the world is full of options trying to achieve God's peace apart from God's grace. Trying to get that shalom apart from the place and the means through which God says it comes, namely Christ. So in his letter, to close this out, Paul is going to put forward the secret, the mystery, that's why we call it this, that is revealed as the key to contentment in every area of life. And just ask, I am not content here. In whatever relationship, whatever finances, or whatever you think brings you security. And the secret, the mystery, is the gospel. And many of us believe the gospel, just these few facts about Jesus that we believe, and then move on and worry about other spiritual things. The gospel is the thing that permeates every aspect of our life. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 29.29 that God leaves a ton to mystery. But it also says He's revealed a lot specifically through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the definition in in the dictionary of the word mystery I love, it says it's a religious truth that one can know only by revelation and cannot fully understand. In other words, I can't convince you more than... All I can do is tell you the truth and pray the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. I don't have that power, and that's, that's a struggle for pastors, quite frankly. Let me put the Savior cape on and beat you down or encourage you until you're convinced. I can just tell you the truth. We will never receive the truth of God unless He opens our eyes, and I pray that He opens all of our eyes. But the beauty of mystery is that we'll never stop learning how the depths of the gospel apply to our lives here on earth. There's layers upon layers upon layers. What is not a mystery, though, is that figuring out a life like that where everything is radically shaped by Jesus, like what? My language my thought life, my marriages, how I work, everything. What's not a mystery is that's really hard. It's hard to fully grasp and it's hard to live. Other priorities, even some important and good ones, compete for our attention. Temptations and opportunities to, quite frankly, live for ourselves are abound daily. There are worldly philosophies that, in the midst of all that noise, come and distract us, and the false promises of sin attract us. And so here is my expectation, my hope, and my prayer. My expectation is that God will help us all to see that there are many things vying for supremacy in our lives, and that is actually the key problem for any of us. And that whatever is supreme or those things vying for supremacy, want to govern our decisions and interpret our circumstances. And my hope is that if you or I have believed the lies, if you or I have made something else more supreme, or believe something is more sufficient than Christ, that the Lord Jesus Christ is not supreme, or you doubt that He is enough, that God will open your eyes to see that you cannot be satisfied apart from Him. And the attempt to be satisfied in any area of life apart from Christ will end up in death and brokenness.
in my prayer, my prayer, my prayer, is that God will use a 2,000-year letter in our study of it to make us all more Christ-centered, more God-glorifying, and more genuinely content than when we first began. That's the best I could hope for. So the band's going to come up, and they're, before they sing, we're going to have a small time of just meditation for a minute or so. And I'm going to close with uh, a verse out of Psalm 139, because of what I really think all of us need to ask is a very, very honest and raw question. What is truly supreme in your life? Really? What is the thing that governs your decisions? Who is the thing or who is the person that, that dictates how you understand what's going on in your life? Because whatever that thing is supreme, you will sacrifice for, you will risk for, you will lose your life for. And if it's not Christ, it leads to death. Let the Lord search your heart. And come to the table. We take communion every Sunday to remind us of what is supreme, what is real, that this is not all there is, that we have forgiveness and strength and power right now in Christ, and we have a home elsewhere. And the time we're given here is for his purposes, for his glory, regardless of what our circumstances he feels necessary to bring us through. Psalm 139 is this, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting.